bear with me a moment while I ask an important question. Do you know where El Paso is? Seriously, gun to your head, could you point it out on the globe? Here's another one to think about. Do you know where the borders of your state, province, or other greater geographical region are? And if you were to come up to it, would you recognize it? Now, your answers to those questions might be an unqualified, duh, of course I know where those things are. You might also be saying to yourself, why is he asking us these random geography questions instead of, you know, talking about Arizona? I've collectively invested more than 12 hours into this podcast, and we still haven't even covered Geronimo. It's a fair point, and while I can't promise that we'll get to Geronimo within the next few episodes, there is a specific reason I want you to think about geography today. To us, who have Google Maps right in our pockets thanks to cell phones, it doesn't matter if we know where El Paso or our state line is. If we don't know it, the all-knowing GPS does. It will even tell us how long it will take to get there. But for the United States and Mexico, in the period following their war, these suddenly became pressing questions. Treaties had been signed that supposedly mapped out who now controlled what. However, there were still years of toil, conflict, and political maneuvering to come before anything resembling an international border was brought into focus. Because, believe it or not, it turns out that no one really had a clue about where El Paso was. And that was going to factor heavily into how the shape of Arizona eventually formed. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 26, Drawing the Line. I want to rewind the clock a few years to the end of the Mexican-American War. You might remember that to bring that conflict to an end, both sides had agreed to the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. We covered this back in episode 22, but the terms of that treaty gave the U.S. the top half of Mexico while fixing a new border between the two countries. This new line started at the Rio Grande, so none of this Nueces River nonsense Mexico had wanted, until just north of Paso or Paso del Norte, today's El Paso, and then skirting west along the New Mexican line until the Gila River. It would then follow that river to its confluence with the Colorado and then strike west to hit south of San Diego. Additionally, a joint commission from the U.S. and Mexico were to meet in no more than a year's time to do the actual surveying and marking of this border and make sure things were wrapped up in a neat, tidy package. While it was a nice thought, there would be nothing neat or tidy about this process. Sure, everyone started off with a great deal of enthusiasm for the project. The U.S. Congress had appropriated $50,000 for the surveying, with the promise of additional appropriations should it be necessary. It's a good thing they added that last part, because the surveying will actually take seven years, with the cost reaching into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Just getting together turned out to be a larger pain than anyone predicted. 
The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo stipulated that everyone should be in San Diego by May 30, 1849 to get the ball rolling. U.S. President James K. Polk had appointed loyal Democrat John B. Weller as the first of what turned out to be four commissioners. Weller decided to take the scenic route, traveling by ship to Panama to cross over to the Pacific Ocean and then up to California. What he had failed to count on was all the 49ers who had the exact same idea, and they clogged up all the available ships. Weller and his party were stuck in Panama for two months before they were able to secure passage to San Diego. At the same time, the Mexican party, led by Commissioner Pedro Garcia Conde and surveyor José Salazar Ilerregui, were having their own issues. The Mexicans will be plagued through this whole process by a lack of adequate instruments, military escorts, and because this is Mexico we are talking about, funding. The work would often be suspended due to this last part, and both Garcia Conde, who will actually die before the survey finishes, and Salazar Ilerregui will reach into their own pockets to try and keep it going. Though always short on funds, the Mexican government had actually sent away to Paris for the finest surveying instruments for the task. But when the shipment arrived they found that they had been sent inferior equipment instead. Until the new tools could get there, they would have to borrow equipment from the Americans. With all this trouble, the Mexican contingent would not arrive at San Diego until early July. Together, the two halves of the Boundary Commission were quite the odd couple. The Americans had the money and the promise of more funding, but were led by political appointees who owed their position to the patronage system in Washington. Weller's only qualification was that he was a faithful Democrat that Polk could trust. The Mexicans, on the other hand, were led by two men who had impeccable credentials for surveying work. Garcia Conde, for example, was a Sonoran native who had just done extensive mapping of the state of Chihuahua. However, they were chronically short of pretty much everything else. Salazar Ileregui noted that while he worked with four engineers, the American team had 20. Still, they had a job to do, so they jumped right into it. One of the first things the commission did was dispatch a party to survey the junction of the Colorado River with the Gila. On the American side, this was led by Lieutenant Emil W. Whipple, who, as we discussed last week, will go on to lead a surveying party across northern Arizona in a few years. Along for the ride as the leader of the military escort was Lieutenant Cave Johnson Coots, now making his third appearance in our podcast, albeit out of strict chronological order. For those keeping track at home, this was after he was part of Graham's expedition through Tucson in 1848, but before setting up shop at Fort Calhoun on the Colorado a little later this same year. Coots did not have high regard for Whipple, mocking him as the going across this harsh, rugged, waterless terrain of extreme Southern California got rough. Washington City dandies with white kids' gloves, etc., he wrote, don't like roughing it any more than having to get up early in the morning, saying nothing of losing a night's sleep. 
Once this party got to the Colorado and the Gila, they immediately saw a problem. U.S. Secretary of State and future President James Buchanan had said that the middle of the Gila River where it met the Colorado was a natural landmark, so there should be little difficulty in surveying it. But the actual surveyors quickly determined that it wouldn't be that simple. Depending on the Gila's flow, which was not at all constant and consistently eroding the river's banks, the middle could be nearly anywhere in its channel. American surveyor Andrew B. Gray summed it up by writing, quote, The middle, therefore, today, may not be the same as yesterday, end quote. While Whipple's party was working on this head-scratcher, the main party back in California was finding problems of its own. This is where we see one of the issues that I mentioned a few episodes back when the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed. That is, the two maps cited specifically in the treaty turned out to not be accurate. Specifically, here we are talking about the 1782 map of San Diego, which didn't line up with the harbor's current shape. Since the treaty said the border would be one marine league south of this harbor, it was agreed that a new complete survey had to be done before that initial point could be decided on. How long does it take to survey a harbor, you ask? Well, in this case, it took five months. Both the Americans and Mexicans had agreed that the line demarcating California from Baja, California was uninhabitable. Therefore, it only needed seven markers between the Pacific Ocean and the Colorado River. However, by the spring of 1850, the only spots they had managed to mark were the starting point at the Pacific and an arbitrary spot at the junction of the Gila and the Colorado. Exhausted and having already spent all the money given them, even the entire $50,000 appropriated by Congress, the commission decided to suspend its activity in order to regroup. Since coming from the West hadn't worked, they decided to meet again in El Paso in early 1851 and see if they would have better luck coming from the East. By the time they reconvened, however, the commission looked different. Weller was now gone. Zachary Taylor, a Whig, was now in the White House, and it simply wouldn't do to still have a Democratic appointee, now would it? In Weller's place, Taylor had appointed John C. Fremont, but he had declined without actually taking up the post because he had just been elected to the U.S. Senate from California. So Taylor went out looking for a faithful Whig again, and came up with John Russell Bartlett, a former bookseller, amateur ethnologist, and dried goods salesman from Providence, Rhode Island. Bartlett had actually been angling to be the U.S. minister to Denmark, but was satisfied with the Boundary Commission. Much like his predecessor, he approached his task with great enthusiasm, mainly because it meant going through the wildlands of the Amerindians, which interested him greatly. You might remember I said in our last episode that one historian characterized him as more interested in writing a book about his travels than actual surveying. Garcia Conde wrote that Bartlett was, quote, a clever fellow, but unqualified for the labors we must perform, end quote. With that rousing endorsement, 
the commission got back to work. Then, of course, they hit another hard problem. Because this is about the time they discovered that the second map the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo had relied on was also inaccurate. It turns out that the Rio Grande was two degrees of longitude west of where it was marked on the map. Also, as I hinted at during the introduction, the town of Paso or Paso del Norte was actually 34 miles south and 130 miles west of where the map placed it. So now we have an international dispute. Do you mark the boundary from where El Paso and the Rio Grande actually are? Or do you mark the boundary from where they should be according to the map? If you went with the actual location, that would give thousands of square miles to the U.S., including the rich Mesilla Valley and copper mines at Santa Rita del Cobre in New Mexico. If you went with where things were supposed to be on the map, that land would be part of Mexico. You can see the problem. And things were heading for an impasse as each side argued that it should have the territory. Finally, though, Bartlett and Garcia Conde sat down together as adults and solved their problem through compromise. Wacky, I know. Both sides agreed that all this fussing and fighting was stupid, and surely there was a practical solution to give each side a fair shake. What they came up with was forgetting about the location of El Paso, and giving the U.S. its boundary on the Rio Grande at the latitude shown on the map. That way, the U.S. would get more land in Texas and the Santa Rita copper mines, while Mexico could keep the Mesilla Valley. Win-win. This was great, and both Bartlett and Garcia Conde were really pleased with themselves. The latter wrote, quote, The most vital question, and that of greatest interest in the determination of the dividing line between our republic and that of the United States, is resolved favorably in the interest of the nation, end quote. Just keep that in mind for now, because this issue isn't as resolved as it seems. Bartlett and Garcia Conde continued westward to demarcate the line they just drew, though the going was getting especially rough. We are now entering into May and June of 1851, which means temperatures could reach 120 degrees during the day on the desert floor or below freezing up on the mountains. Especially rocky terrain in the way of their straight, neat, dotted line meant occasionally having to abandon their wagons and haul their instruments and supplies by hand. At one point, the group went 36 hours without food and 18 hours without water as they traversed deep arroyos with steep cliff sides that even their mules couldn't navigate. This terrain took a big chunk out of the party's enthusiasm. Bartlett would write in his journal, quote, the thought would keep suggesting itself. Is this the land we have purchased and are to survey and keep at such a cost? As far as the eye can reach stretches one unbroken waste, barren, wild, worthless, end quote. Dr. Thomas Webb, the U.S. Commission Secretary, also wrote, quote, Indeed, much of this country, that by those residing at a distance is imagined to be a perfect paradise, is a sterile waste, 
utterly worthless for any purpose than to constitute a barrier or natural line of demarcation between two neighboring nations. End quote. Though the Americans considered the border uninhabitable, we know better. The arbitrary line the two nations had drawn to settle their border went straight through the territory of the Apache, Tohono O'odham, Akamel O'odham, Maricopa, Cocopaw, Quechan, and Degueno peoples. In fact, something I forgot to mention while covering the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo is that Article 11 had the U.S. promising to stop any native raiding into northern Mexico and to return any Mexican captives. It was an impossible, almost laughable clause that would be quickly abandoned during the upcoming negotiations over the Gadsden Purchase. As a native of Sonora, García Conde was at the very least well aware of Apache raiding, and probably on his guard as the commission kept moving into the Apacheria. In search of adventure and to do a little sightseeing, Bartlett and some of the party headed toward the old settlement of Fronteras and then on to Arispe. By late June, they were back at Santa Rita de Cobre in New Mexico to actually, you know, continue the work. And it's while camped here that Bartlett's paternalistic naivete about the Amerindians would come face-to-face with reality. You see, on June 27, 1851, a group of traders came by the camp. With them, they had a young Mexican girl they had recently purchased from the Apaches and were planning on selling again. As an anti-slavery Whig, Bartlett was horrified by the notion of slavery or selling captives and felt it was his duty to intervene as the, quote, nearest and highest representative of the government of the United States, end quote. Citing provisions in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, Bartlett ordered the military commander of the expedition to have the girl freed immediately. The girl said her name was Ines Gonzalez, originally from Santa Cruz. She had been captured by Pinal Apaches in September 1850 near Magdalena while on her way to the annual festival of San Francisco. Historian James Officer points out that she was no doubt one of the captives the Apaches would have freed in December 1850 during the five-minute peace at Tucson if the Odom hadn't suddenly arrived. Gonzalez would stay with the Boundary Commission for three months, and reuniting her with her family would serve as Bartlett's proudest moment as a commissioner. He was feeling quite good with himself for saving the girl from barbarism and enforcing the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. But the very next day after arranging for her freedom, his ideals would be dashed to pieces. Because that's when two Mexican boys approached the company's interpreter and asked for help. They had been captured by the Apaches six years earlier and were looking to return home. Bartlett, of course, readily agreed to help and sent a note to Garcia Conde to see that they were reunited with their families. That was all well and good, more freeing of captives from immoral slavery and whatnot, but then the Apaches showed up. Namely, here we find Mangas Colorados again, and another leader named Delgadito, riding into camp after hearing that the captives had been taken in and sent away by the commission. They, naturally, were there to make sure that the boy's Apache captor was paid for their loss of property. 
Because of his natural aversion to the slave trade, Bartlett abhorred the idea of buying the boys' freedom. So instead, he treated the two Apache leaders to a small lecture on the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and the, quote, principles of justice and humanity on which it is based, end quote. Now, we should keep in mind that Bartlett had tried to cultivate friendly relations with all the natives during his work. In his view, the attacks and depredations of the Apaches and others was due to mistreatment at the hands of Mexicans or early American pioneers and settlers, but with a little kind treatment and sticking by righteous principles, they could solve all these ills. So he is whining and dining Apache leaders, distributing gifts while trying to explain those principles of justice and humanity written into the treaty. Though it ultimately boiled down to, oh, by the way, your economic system of raiding and selling captives has to go away now. Mungus Colorados happily accepted the new broadcloth suit with ornamental buttons Bartlett provided, but then shot down this whole our land, our rules nonsense. The commission was on Apache land, and he made sure they knew it. You came to our country, Colorado said. You were well received by us. Your lives, your property, your animals were safe. You passed by ones, by twos, and by threes through our country. You went and came in peace. Did you hear an inherent threat there? I think I heard an inherent threat there. Finally, the impasse was broken when it was agreed that the commission would pay $250 worth of goods to the Apaches in exchange for the two boys. Bartlett, trying to save face while only slightly bending his principles, had one of the Mexicans in the party pay so that it would not be an official purchase. He would also later justify this decision by stating that he agreed to the deal in order to keep from inflaming hostility among the Apaches, which could fall upon and kill every last member of the Boundary Commission. And just to drive home the point of who was actually in power around here, the Apaches drove off hundreds of the Commission's mules and horses. Delgadito, who had helped spearhead the negotiations for the Apaches, and had slept in the tent of the commission's interpreter just a few nights before, taunted the Americans and Mexicans by, quote, slapping his buttocks and defying us with the most opprobrious language, end quote. For those who don't speak 19th century English, opprobrious means scornful or critical, though the slapping of his buttocks might have been all the context that you needed. In late August, Bartlett and his party left Santa Rita de Cobre and headed southwest to meet up with Garcia Conde. They got together about a day's journey east of the San Pedro River, near the Chiricahua Mountains in southeast Arizona. They held a small meeting with the top four leaders of the commission to discuss the state of their current work. And now we run into yet another intractable problem. Remember that compromise that Garcia Conde and Bartlett had worked out about where to draw the line between Mexico and New Mexico? Yep, it's time for that to rear its ugly head again. The two commissioners still really liked the idea, and everything looked hunky-dory. Until September 4, 1851, 
when they presented their compromise line to the rest of the commission. Surveyor Andrew B. Gray suddenly voiced his considerable objections to this compromise, arguing that the U.S. was getting shorted out of some 6,000 square miles of land that it had won fair and square. Garcia Conde and Bartlett calmly informed him that his objections were noted, but ultimately they had come too late, and they tried to move on to other business. However, Gray would not be so easily deterred and continued denouncing the plan. Since his approval was necessary for the line to be made official, the compromise could not be finalized and had to be set aside until an understanding was reached. Just so you know, his loud objections to the Bartlett-Conde line will eventually see him booted from the commission. However, he had the last laugh as southern politicians, eager for an all-weather railroad line, would wind up denouncing Bartlett's compromise as well. But for now, though, the commission decided that Gray needed some busy work to keep him quiet and, more importantly, far away, so he was sent with Whipple to keep surveying the Gila River toward the Colorado. Gray and Whipple set out on this task and were busy surveying until they ran out of supplies, so they decided to follow the river to Fort Yuma to restock. They arrived exhausted and hungry, but yeah, remember we said back in episode 24 that the Americans actually had abandoned the fort in 1851? Well, there was nothing there for them, except for a whole lot of hostile-looking questions. According to state historian Marshall Trimble, the small group thought the end was nigh and prepared to make a final stand on December 25, 1851. What happened next? Well, in Whoville, they say that it was a Christmas miracle. Among the questions was a native girl who recognized Whipple. While surveying two years before, Whipple had found her lost and wandering in the desert. He had given her food and a shiny mirror before helping her back to her people. This was apparently enough to break the ice, and the questions went from hostile to welcoming. So, 1851 ended up on a fairly good note for Gray and Whipple. Meanwhile, after making sure Gray and Whipple had gotten started on their busy work, Bartlett and Garcia Conde decided to head to Santa Cruz for more provisions. Garcia Conde set off first, with Bartlett following a few days later. He probably should have gone with his fellow commissioner, who was an actual native to the area, because en route, Bartlett got lost. After wandering for several days across southern Arizona, they ran across some men from Santa Cruz hunting wild cattle. Among their party was the stepfather of Ines Gonzalez, which led to the happy reunion I mentioned earlier. Eventually, the group arrived at Santa Cruz, where Bartlett was put off by the destitution all around him. He even records that it had been temporarily abandoned the previous fall. Once in town, the commission suffered from continuous theft from the community's poorer inhabitants, so much so that Bartlett had to order that no locals were allowed in camp. Finding Santa Cruz destitute, Bartlett decided to press on to the settlement of Magdalena for the supplies he needed. On the way, however, he was actually stopped by a government official who demanded to double-check his papers to make sure he was actually on official business. 
It's due to this encounter that we get an interesting comment from Bartlett about how the Mexicans had a general distrust of Americans now because of, quote, their brutal and shameful conduct, end quote. He records that lands were seldom fenced in northern Sonora, and that Americans would frequently walk into fields and take the food that a family might depend on for survival. Or they had been known to enter a house with pistols drawn and help themselves to what's inside, quote, without the ceremony of paying for what they take and commit other outrages which make one who has any national pride blush to hear recited, end quote. Ultimately, Bartlett had enough official papers from both the U.S. and Mexican governments to make this inspection more of a temporary inconvenience, and he went on his way. He found that Magdalena was also lacking in provisions, so he pushed on to the capital city of Ures. He fell ill while en route and would stay in the city until late December while recuperating. He ultimately fared a lot better than Garcia Conde, who had also fallen ill and had stayed at his family's home in Arispe. Unfortunately, Garcia Conde would not recover, and he died on December 19, 1851, at the age of 45. After receiving the news several days later, Bartlett decided to meet up with Gray and Whipple, who at that very moment were relieved to know that they weren't about to be massacred by angry questions. Bartlett boarded a ship at the port city of Guaymas in early January 1852 to head to San Diego and eventually meet up with what's left of the Boundary Commission. So yeah, the work is going to be delayed again. This iteration of the commission had done some good work and surveyed a wide swath of territory. Unfortunately, most of the work they had just done ended up being irrelevant. We are still years away from the final end of surveying work, mainly because in 1853, arguments for building a southern railroad and against the line that Garcia Conde and Bartlett had drawn would result in the U.S. finally approaching Mexico with an offer. So join me next week as we discuss that offer, the Gadsden Purchase, which will finally see Mexico forever relinquish Arizona south of the Gila River. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.